Hi, I'm Rick Hugh, and welcome to the Winding Life Podcast. Today, I welcome Carol Hutchinson. Carol is a friend and colleague that I've known for more than 25 years. Carol does not fit the mold. In orthopedics, Carol became an arthroplasty surgeon at a time when sexism in orthopedics was considered the norm. Women were too small and not physically capable of doing real orthopedics, like joint replacement. We'll hear about some of the challenges that Carol faced in those early years and how she met those challenges and excelled. Also not in the mold was her decision to stop her surgical practice and to focus more on wellness, both her own and others. Carol has a deep understanding of yoga and the strong relationship between mind and body wellness. We hear about Carol's important focus as Associate Dean at the Cumming School of Medicine, University of Calgary, on the mind and body wellness of future physicians and specialists. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Carol Hutchinson as much as I did. Today, Carol, it's it's my pleasure to welcome you to, to the podcast. We're calling it The Winding Life. Mm. And it's it's my pleasure to welcome you. I've known you now for more than 30 years, I think. And we'll maybe get into that a little bit, but just to really start off with tell me who are who you are right now and what, what are you doing? Okay. So my well, my name is Carol. <laughs> my uh my role at the medical school right now is assistant dean of student advocacy and wellness hub. As you know. My clinical practice is in orthopedic mm-hmm. surgery, although I'm not doing surgery anymore. I still have an outpatient practice, a clinical, a non-surgical practice. But I would probably say none of those things really define who I am. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Tell me more, please. <laughs> well, uh, since the title of your podcast is A Winding Road, I think I've I've followed... I guess a winding path in a mm. way through on this journey. And and so I would think some of it hasn't really been conscious decisions. It was listening to my gut. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it got me to this place. Well, I, I want to learn a little bit more about that, about, you know, listening to your gut and and the sort of choices that that you've made. And I know that you've thought a lot about it because we have we've had some conversations in the past on this. But Tell me, tell me about your growing up and, and, you know, those sort of big influences in, in your life as you were sort of getting to where you are. That's always a good thing to reflect on, isn't mm-hmm. it? I suppose we should reflect on the influences that were positive, which really always stand out first, but then maybe influences that are, are negative too. So let's see. What has influenced me? I, you know, I think I would say a, a really powerful influence was going to summer camp. And I know that sounds really <laughs> kind of odd, but the types of the community that mm-hmm. was there and the friendships that we built and just being out in nature and I guess the freedom to be creative. You felt free. Right. Was that when you were in grade school or or all yeah. throughout uh, grade school and, and and junior high or high school? Yeah, I actually went mm-hmm. to summer camp for about 10 years. Okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, grade school and high school, really. By the time I went to university, I stopped going to summer camp. Although, I have to say, later on in life, I had another experience where at the end, I said, this was just like being in summer camp. <laughs> so. I had an experience like that, too, in, in Illinois, but that's something else that we can, we can probably talk about. Oh, yeah. Okay. But awesome. what was it about the, the summer camp experience that really, that really influenced you that much? I suppose the energy there, like mm-hmm. with everyone there, the just general energy was so open, accepting, at least I found it that mm-hmm. way, non-judgmental. You just felt this air of unconditional love with these vast number of 
people together. I, and I think nature, being out in nature is powerful. And, and was that, is that related to neighbors or, or school uh, mates that had gone to the summer camp or was it sort of just a random selection of people who, who decided to go to summer camp? Totally random selection. We were not in school together. We weren't even from the same cities. As we're talking, I'm thinking the other thing at camp that was quite powerful was, at least in girls' camp, we sang a lot. Like we, <laughs> after every meal or during the meals, we were we sang and we sang in the evenings. And I am not, I can't sing. Okay, so but that, there was the non-judgmental piece. It didn't mm, matter whether yeah. you could sing or not. <laughs> Everyone joined in and sang, and maybe that ability to just be free to sing too was awesome. And and so did that did that influence. Your decision subsequent to that, was it, did it have an effect on, you know, sort of what you wanted to do in school and what you wanted to do after school? Or did you start off as a, I'm going to be a doctor, I'm going to be an orthopedic surgeon? Uh, No, I did not start (laughs) off that way at all. But yeah, I would say it influenced me. I think the other thing that we had at camp was sort of the skill development. And there was so like, canoeing, sailing, um, swimming, and just all kinds of skill development. And I think the playfulness of camp, but the discipline to actually like study how to sail a boat and practice and this kind of practice and getting good at something. And that was woven into the experience. So I think probably it might have even... Yeah, I guess it probably guided me toward the sciences a bit, you know, because a lot of those things, nature and, and the skills we were doing were, were very scientifically based probably. So technical. Technical. Yeah. 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 And, and so did you have siblings or do you have, did, were your parents influential in, in, you know, sort of some of the choices and decisions into the future? Oh, yeah. Yes, I have two siblings. Mm-hmm. I have an older sister and a younger sister, both highly accomplished sisters. <laughs> <laughs> Keep me on my toes. And my parents were very influential in a really positive way, just creating an incredible home environment mm-hmm. for us, I would say. My father, you know, back then, dads didn't always be kind of have be immersed with their children like but he was very involved with us like taking us skiing teaching us how to play tennis or my mother too and and you know squash and sport different sports Mm -hmm. and he actually went to summer camp as a boy and it was very influential to him and so I would say going to summer camp was very much he was you're going to summer camp. <laughs> so when you say, were we, was I influenced by them? Absolutely. And they were incredible listeners too. So yeah. they, they really listened. They didn't yeah. just listen to the words. They listened to beyond the word. It sounds like having three daughters that your, your parents really didn't see a limit to, you know, where you the three of you would go in in the future. Would that be fair to say? That is very fair to say. I would say, yeah, my my mother, my father, it was sort of, you know, go for what you're passionate about, you know? Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And and so that, that seems to have laid a pretty good foundation for, you know, going out there and, and getting it. And, and, and so when did the, when did medicine become, you know, an object in your, in your, in your sort of pathway? (laughs) Okay. So, um, (laughs) as I said, I love the sciences. And so this was back in the 1970s, of course, I was looking at what I was going to study at university because I was planning to go to university and it was like, 
looking at all these different types of courses. And at that time, no one really knew what kinesiology was. Like when I said to my parents, finally, I landed on kinesiology, I said, I want to study kinesiology. <laughs> they looked at me and they said, what is that? <laughs> so um, there's still so, a little bit of that. No. Yeah, maybe a little bit, but I think I think it's definitely expanded because back then there were only two universities mm -hmm. in Canada who had a kinesiology program. That was Waterloo and Simon Fraser. And so I applied to Waterloo and I went to kinesiology there. I when we talk about influences along mm -hmm. my journey, that was a strong influence, yeah. really. Like the program there was fabulous. The professors were amazing. I was in the co-op stream. So we would do like a school term and then a work term and then a school term. But interestingly, and for whatever reason, most of my work terms were with Board of Education and I was working as an education consultant. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so you, you, you got some of that exposure quite early on to the, to the sort of teacher-student interaction. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And so I, and, and I taught, so I was an education consultant with the Wellington Board of Ed and then the, I guess it was called York or something, but I was doing, I was a phys ed, phys ed education consultant. So I would go to the various schools in our, in our territory mm -hmm. and teach the teachers how to teach phys ed. And then also I taught outdoor ed. So oh, that, that fit in closely with your camp experience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I used to take the kids out and teach them what bird songs, <laughs> flowers, and they were going to see, and we played games and things. So my work terms were more education, really focused. And then I was, I was coming into my last year in kinesiology. And two of my professors said, you have to go to medicine. You're, you're not going to be happy in anything else. Well, why do you think they said that? I, well, I don't know. I'd worked, you know, I'd done a bunch of courses with them. Mm -hmm. And I know one of them had, had applied to medicine of quite a few times okay. and hadn't gotten in. And I was kind of going in that direction yeah. and they said no you you have to apply to medicine so, you're not going to be happy in anything else yeah it's 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 interesting do you think that was a commentary on what they thought about kinesiology or i'm sure it was a commentary on how well they thought you would do but was that also a commentary on where they saw kinesiology you know I, the, yeah. the hierarchy or the status of kinesiology I think back then there was a big question when mm -hmm. you graduated with a degree in kinesiology. It's not like there were jobs right. for kinesiologists yeah. out there. Most people who graduated with a degree in kinesiology went on and did something else like mm -hmm. education or, yeah, or if they got a PhD in kinesiology and kept <laughs> researching. So, yeah, I think it was probably a little bit of that, like, like what, job are you going to get with this degree okay. kind of thing yeah. and I don't know I don't know I actually it's not like they they weren't in the kinesiology MD grooming factory no <laughs> no not at all and I didn't really give it a lot of thought why they yeah. said that to me I just mostly it landed mm. like when they said you you need to go into medicine because you're not going to be happy doing anything else. I thought, oh, that's yeah, okay. Yeah, because the teachers that I'd been working with in the board of ed had all sort of said to me, oh, you know, you you need to be a teacher. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, what do I do here? And actually, kind of in thinking through that, I thought, well, you know, if I became a teacher, I can't practice medicine. But if I go into medicine, I can still teach. Yeah, yeah. So I think that was kind of how I landed on the idea that maybe I would follow a path to medicine because it didn't rule out the opportunity to teach. So you're really looking at the, the downstream opportunities of, of your 
career decision path. Yes. Yeah. So I actually, I, I had to finish four school terms in order to get my kindergree before the next September. It's kind of odd that I thought of this even. I'd, it's almost like I couldn't have actually thought of it. It had to have been like it just something came in that said, do that. So right? there's a bit of a serendipity yeah. for de novo idea generation. Because <clears throat> I went into the co-op. So I made an appointment at the co-op office and uh, some counselor met with me. <clears throat> and I said, I want to switch out of the co-op stream. Because the co-op stream, like I, I would take another year to get my mm -hmm. degree. So because I want to switch out of the co-op stream and do four school terms in a row. And she looked at me and she said, that's a really bad idea. <laughs> and I said, I was, well, that's what I want to do. Well, and she gave me a long lecture about how, you know, people get way better jobs from co-op and you said you're really disadvantaging yourself by you, doing your, that. Your thoughts had already gone past that. They had already yeah. gone past yeah. it, yeah. yeah. So I I ended up doing four school. I did switch out even against her advice. Yeah. She was kind of angry with me. I think I got that <laughs> sense, but I was just on a roll. So I did a summer school term, fall school term, winter school term, and summer school term. And I finished my degree two weeks before I started med school. Well, that's uh, a <laughs> good timing. <laughs> yeah. So I, I wanted to make sure after that, all that, I sort of did finish that degree. But yeah, so that's so, so I can't say it was conscious, though. I hadn't been thinking about medicine for a long yeah. time. It was very much in so, that year before. So once you got into medical, where, where did you go to school? Medical school. Medical school is at McMaster. Yeah. So I, I went to McMaster because <clears throat> I had missed the time for the MCAT. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, at that period of time, McMaster was the only school in Canada where you didn't need the MCAT. Yes. Yeah. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll apply to Mac this year. Yeah. And then I'll do the MCAT next year. And then next year I'll apply everywhere. Right. right. So I wasn't actually expecting to get in. <laughs> I just applied to McMaster's, the only school yeah. I applied to. 100% hit rate. <laughs> <laughs> and I got in. So I, yeah. So, so. <laughs> I did. So I didn't, let's put it this way. I don't really have a choice for medical So it sounds like, to. it sounds that like, <laughs> um, yeah, truly a bit of a winding, winding path there. And you no, know, you, you weren't headed towards there, but. It seemed like the right, right decisions at, at those points in time. Yeah. And I like, I think you're right. Like it's the timing, right? It yeah. just sort of go in the present moment, Yeah, just make a choice. But do, do you think also that there is some influence on, on that by just being primed to be thinking that way? Like that you're, mm -hmm. you're open to opportunity? You mean like? Your nature is to be open to opportunity. Yes, you're, you're, you're looking for opportunity as opposed to, you know, you're looking for reasons to, to do things as, as opposed mm. to reasons not to do things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And maybe it's that you just keep doing things. Mm -hmm. So it could be that you just keep doing things without... <clears throat> Like without having a specific expectation of an end result mm -hmm. or a goal, you just keep the action going and, and then things come in your path and you, we all have free will choice. You, you either choose it or you yeah. don't, and then you just keep going. Yeah. It's kind of like the message of the Bhagavad Gita <laughs> in a way that, that, any action is better than inaction. So, you, <laughs> let's let's go down that pathway right now. Since you know, I, I really want to learn some about how that whole your your sort of 
mindset and, and world has really sort of aligned with Eastern philosophy and with, with uh, yoga and with the whole concept of being more present and understanding of, of, of life. And so when did you start thinking along those lines or, you know, was there an epiphany for you or was it? With in, like to follow a path of yoga. Yes. Well, um, yeah, I have all these little stories. So I <laughs> I should tell the the story how the seed was planted. Because it comes back to what you were asking earlier, mm. like like are there sort of these influences along the way? Yeah. I think it's true, like there's certain things that really land in us, like we don't forget, mm -hmm. right? So I was teaching minimally invasive hip and knee surgery in Asia. Yeah, that, uh, that's about as that's about as technical a surgical process for an orthopedic surgeon as possible. I mean, it is, you know, it's something that is takes a lot, a lot of preparation, practice, and and sort of experience. Yeah. So that was back in two thousand and two. I was over in Singapore, and. There was a conference while I was there. So a part of my visit was teaching minimally invasive hip surgery there. And then there was the Singapore Orthopedic Association conference mm -hmm. going on at the same time. So I was one of the speakers at the conference. And at the, at the break, out in the little coffee area or whatever, they had set, there were various people out there with sort of interesting things they were doing. And there was a guy in the corner who was beating palms. <laughs> and I never had my palm read At, at an orthopedic conference. Yeah, I know. I thought that was awesome, right? I was like, this is awesome. And of course, I'd never had my palm read. So I thought, I'm, I'm going to have my palm read. So I went over. I put my palm out and he took my palm and he looked at my palm and then he looked up at me. <laughs> And then he looked at my, and he did that a few times. And I was like, oh dear, because <laughs> he was like looking at me yeah. with these eyes of like, kind of what's going on sort of thing. He turned my hand over. But did he feel that they didn't match or that there was a dissonance there? Yeah, he saw a dissonance. Yeah. So he looked at my palms and he kept looking at me and he was like, it was like that dissonance. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally he spoke. And the first thing he said was, I've never seen so many lines on a palm before. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then he said, you need to settle your mind. You need to practice yoga. And that was like really, honestly, the first time that I, like yoga had met me or like yeah. I had met yoga, that concept. So so how did that hit you? I mean, you're in the middle of the orthopedic <laughs> conference. You've, you've, you're teaching you know, highly technical orthopedic <laughs> surgery skills. And, and this, this guy tells you, was this something that was, you, you had known or that you had felt? Was this something that, that sort of opened your eyes? No, like, and he carried on and he said other things as well. And I was like, He's dead on. He's absolutely mm -hmm. dead on. So I was like, yes, I, I, you know, everything you said was dead on. So that also sort of helped me realize, yeah, I, I do need to figure out a way to settle the mind. That the, the other part of that story, which I, I love to tell you this part of it anyways, because my husband happened to be there with me. And I said, go have your palm read. He's really good, right? <laughs> and my husband was like, no, I'm not having my palm read, right? I said, yes, go, go have your palm read. So I finally got him to sit down. Well, <clears throat> he sat down and he looked at my husband's palm and um, he looked up at him. And, they looked, and so he did the same thing. So I thought... Okay, oh. <laughs> truly. And he thought this dissonance, right? Or that same thing. And I thought, okay, then it's just what he does. But then he said, I've never seen such a, such clean palms. You have no lines on your 
And it was true. My husband had such a settled mind. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, that's true. He really does have clean palms. <laughs> so that seed was planted, but I didn't act then. Mm -hmm. I was still very much immersed in yeah. busy life of orthopedic surgeon, right? And so I didn't act then. And so maybe I'll go back and just ask you, well, what's the <laughs> level of and, and the depth of, of involvement that you, you've had with yoga? Okay, that's a good question. In my heart, I would say it's, it's deep. How what depths have I gone to? I barely scratched the surface. <laughs> I, I, yoga. I, I, that's a, that's a universal response. Yeah, yoga is infinite, mm -hmm. and so I I can't even I can't even really know it fully in this lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> but you're trying. But. Every day, yeah. just practice every day. What is it that, you know, fills that depth of your heart? Mm. You mean what do you, what do you receive that? Yeah, so I mean, up? what what part of of the of the experience or the learning and the doing and the are there things that particularly, you know, fulfill your needs or that particularly, you know, bring you that, that peace uh, in, in your mind? Well, first of all, I don't know that it's filling, like it's, it's since the philosophy is that we are all one energy, when you say it's filling your needs, it isn't sort of about the individual mm -hmm. self. So... Is it filling a, a, a need? I think so. <laughs> to be of service, right? I guess what it, the part of it mm -hmm. that probably, maybe it's a good way of looking at it is what keeps you coming back right. to it, yeah. right? Like in other words, now that I, it's in my life, I will never deviate from that path. So what would keep me back to it? It is guiding you to emptiness, <laughs> to zero. And the zero is, <laughs> I, I'm trying to understand a little bit more. So I guess uh, if we look at the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, Patanjali is the one who wrote them down, but they existed probably before that in a verbal, like a oral tradition. There, it's sort of divided into four sections, but the first four verses, and now the teachings on yoga begin. Yoga is the settling of the mind. And when the mind is settled, we are established in our essential nature, which is unbounded consciousness. Our essential nature is usually overshadowed by the activities of the mind. So the way our brain works, you, you know the nervous system better than I do as a spine surgeon, but the way our brain works is, you know, we've, our subconscious mind has created patterns, habitual patterns, mm -hmm. and we will move through life, through the sensory world, relying on those patterns and we need them like it's not that we're trying to get rid of them because we need them like if I if I had to learn every single day how to put my shoes on well, you know the day would take a long time so we need patterns but there's a lot of patterning of our minds like perhaps limiting beliefs that limit us because mm -hmm. so there's these belief patterns we have and then our projection out in the world influences others, potentially in a negative yeah. way, Yeah. right? Yeah. Like if, if I have a belief pattern that I'm not accepted for who I am or what I do, and I'm walking around the world with that yeah. lens that on. That emanates to other people. Yeah. yeah. 
and yeah. it's not serving humanity. So, so when we, when we don't have our awareness, like opening up the subconscious mind so that we can have our awareness, witness it, observe it, and then pause at some, so that you mm -hmm. can make a choice, that free will choice to change a pattern. And changing pattern <laughs> is not easy, right? Like, I mean, when you ask some people and say, do you believe, I remember sitting around our family over Christmas one year and the, a question popped up, do, do you think people can change or not change? And, and that's an interesting <laughs> question to ask a group of people, right? I guess it's context, a lot of it. Yeah. Do you yeah. think people can change or not change? Yes, I do believe that people can change. And, you know, I, I don't believe that all people are the same for time immemorial. Because uh, I think that we all learn and... It may not be that our personality changes, but I do think that parts of it can change. And I think people can become better over life and people can become worse over life. But the, my belief is that the majority of us don't do it consciously. And yeah. I think that, that, as you say, having consciousness and agency is a really important thing for everyone, for all of us to learn that, that we do have agency in our life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I don't know what, 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 what do you think? <laughs> yeah. I believe people can change, but I also believe it's, it's very hard. It's it not, is. it's not, I mean. To change your subconscious programming requires, yeah, that consciousness and a, a diligent practice. I think um, the other, the other thing that the reason why I think it's hard to change is that, is that the, you know, it it does take that consciousness, and it's so much easier not to, and so much easier to to blame something else as being the no, I couldn't because of, you know, as opposed to actually accepting that, you know, you have that personal choice. So I think going into or having a time of stress can really recalibrate your thoughts on, on your own choices and your own decision-making. Mm-hmm. That's the usefulness of stress, yes. right? Yeah. yeah, because in that moment, you're, you're forced to face something. <laughs> yes, because what you had done before wasn't working. And so you have to face the fact that you have, there's something different that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. yeah. So you made some choices in terms of orthopedics. And, you know, the, the classic stereotype of, of the orthopedic surgeon. Well, first of all, I decided to go into orthopedics. You know, when I started orthopedics, just a little bit, well, actually around the same time as you did, probably yeah, very close to that. Yeah, a few years, just a yeah, couple a year years two, before, but yeah. a couple of years. You know, orthopedics was um, tall white guys with uh, blue blazers, gray flannels, <laughs> button down shirt and a, and a tie and a rep tie, you know, some type of tie that, that, that denoted their status in, in life. <laughs> you know, a COA tie or a, or a university tie. And so I didn't fit that profile and you didn't fit that profile. Yet here you are, you know, accomplished orthopedic surgeon and in, in a field that is quite filled with characters and, uh, and personalities. How did that happen? <laughs> You've described it well, right? You say um, things with a, a sigh there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, in my kinesiology program, I loved anatomy. I just loved it. And the professor who taught us anatomy was an orthopedic surgeon. Like amazing that we mm -hmm. had an orthopedic surgeon teaching us anatomy 
at Waterloo. And I did all the anatomy courses and then I became a pro sector. And, and then we created sort of a, a brand new kinesiology course called sports medicine <laughs> back then. So that was an influence for sure. Like I did come into medicine thinking I, I really love orthopedics. Mm-hmm. I had worked as an athletic trainer on a lot of the University of Waterloo varsity teams. Sports was important to me too. So I kind of got interested in how the body moves and body movement was important. And and that's a lot of what orthopedics is about in a lot of ways. But when I, I got to medical school, I thought, I, I need to see if there's anything else I like better. <laughs> so it was kind of my measuring stick. And then I, I the first real while, I just did electives in everything else, mm-hmm. like just all kinds of things, rest, anything I thought I would be interested in. I was a, a CPR instructor before medical school. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll like cardiology. And I did all kinds of things. And then in the end, I... I really just kept coming back to orthopedics. So, but you're right. I mean, at that time, we weren't the typical orthopedic surgeon. So I have to admit, I, I wasn't really expecting to get in. <laughs> I thought, well, I'll apply, but I, I'm not <laughs> expecting to get in. I remember one of the very kind orthopedic surgeon in Toronto when I was I think I must have been an intern then and wanting to do orthopedics. And uh, he said, well, you need to meet with this female orthopedic resident in our program and talk to her. And so I thought, okay, because I think there were only three practicing orthopedic surgeons in the country. There was Carol Reed in Toronto, Maureen Finnegan in Ottawa, and then there was an orthopedic surgeon, a female in Thunder Bay. I can't remember her name, but... Those were the only yeah. three in Canada right yep. then. So I sat down with this resident and she said to me, don't do it. <laughs> like, and I was, oh, and I was like, the, the whole coffee was about why I shouldn't do it. <laughs> and I, I kind of left there thinking, okay, I guess I'll still apply and see what happens. <laughs> um, but I was, I, I think one of the things, and this is kind of a teaching of yoga too, like the, the path of karma yoga is to act or to do something without expecting anything in return, mm-hmm. yeah. right? So mm-hmm. you do all these things, you act, but you don't have an expectation of a particular result. And, and maybe in that sense, I... I thought, well, it's not going to hurt for me to apply to orthopedics if they don't, if I don't get in, I don't get in. And yeah. then I go do, another do, path, do, some, <laughs> do something right. else. <laughs> so I got, it, I got in. But yeah, back then the interviews were quite something because there were no real rules around no, the interviews, no rules. right? They <laughs> probably would violate most of the, most of the human rights uh, policies uh, for hiring and for uh, diversity questions and things of that nature. Yeah. I remember one, seriously, this was my interview. I went to his office and we were the only two in the room and big desk and I was sitting back here and this was the entire interview and and I'm not kidding. He started off and he said, do you have children? That was the first question. Not allowed anymore. <laughs> and I said, uh, no, not, no. And he said, are you planning to have children in the next five years? Because is five years long. And I said, not that I know of, but, you know, who knows, right? And then he said, are you married? And I said, no. And uh, he said, are you planning to get married in the next five years? And I said, not that I know of. And then he said, do you have a boyfriend? And I said, no, not right now. And then his last question was, what's your sexual preference? <laughs> and that was my whole interview. That was the entire oh, I... interview. He said that was it. I mean, 
I was kind of scared. So I said heterosexual, but when I reflected on it later, I kind of wished I'd said sheep or something. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But that was the end of the interview. Like I literally left his office after that. But that that was orthopedics then. Yeah, you're right. That was orthopedics. Yeah. I think another one of my interviews went, what does your father do? At that time, my father was national director for Save the Children. And I said, what does your mother do? She's an Ontario commissioner for the Red Cross. Isn't there anybody in your family who's a doctor? And I said, well, my uncle. And he said, what kind of doctor is he? I said, he's a pathologist. And the, hey, you probably said, oh. well, that doesn't count. And then, <laughs> and, then, um, I, and then he said, get out of my office. You're wasting my time. No, he said, first he said, First, he said, you have no idea what a life would be like in this. Get out of my office. You're wasting my time. So after a few of these interviews, I really wasn't expecting to get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, it, it, it certainly was challenging, and yet you continued. The door opened. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, it is funny. Yeah. And then I guess, you know, in retrospect, was that the door that you wanted open? Mm, Good question. I don't know if I would, I don't know if I would ask myself that question because it's the door that opened and went through. So that's what I was, that was the path that I was meant to follow on at that time. So See, I, I, I really love that. I really love that answer because, you know, a lot of people, you know, occasionally me included, you know, you, you have this retrospective regret. Mm. Okay. This, this feeling that the wrong door opened or you took the wrong door and that because of that, you know, the life has sort of changed in a way that wasn't to your liking. But your answer really was that was the door. And so that was the way it was. Or the, and, and so whether you like it or not now, that was the door. It's, it, that was it. That was it. And, and so I, I think that, you know, the, you know, some of the leading problems of, of, you know, mental health right now are things like anxiety and depression, you know, and anxiety is a worry about what's going to happen. Depression is unhappiness with what has happened, you know, and, and, you know, you're saying that that was the path, you know, it would say, why, why worry about what has happened? Now that's not to say, I mean, the path was, was a struggle. You know that too, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough journey, but just because it's a struggle doesn't mean it's a negative thing right and just because there's suffering doesn't mean it's negative either i don't think yeah i agree yeah yeah <laughs> so i know that you, you stopped surgery how long is it now maybe seven or eight years or no oh, no it's about coming up to five five yeah, yeah. Not, not too bad not and, too bad yeah and and how did you come to that conclusion <laughs> i mean I came to the same conclusion, yeah, about seven years ago. And so I'm interested to know, you know, how how you got there. I don't know that I thought about it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I, I, I can't say I really thought about it. I probably was thinking about it. There must have been things that were happening guiding me that way. In fact, there were. Like at that time, I know it was when, you know, a lot of grads couldn't get jobs. Mm -hmm. And so in order for them to get jobs, they need operating room time. And and I was sort of looking at what I was doing Mm -hmm. with my operating room time and thinking this would be probably at this stage, better served Mm -hmm. by one of our grads. 
Like there was maybe those things in the subtle part, in the background. But the instant that I knew, (laughs) (laughs) I remember it was about a week after I'd done my last surgery. I still didn't realize it was my last surgery. And uh, a couple of the surgeries that I had booked coming up, the the, the cases were canceled for lots of different reasons. Like one, we were waiting for a CT scan and it hadn't, it couldn't, now the CT scan was put off for a couple of months or a month. and, And so we couldn't, we had to postpone their surgery. Another patient had had heart issues and we had to cancel them to, and rebook them. Like, though, it just seemed like there were all these things happening with my schedule where, like, all the patients that mm-hmm. were booked in <clears throat> my OR time were, be, like, having yeah. to be canceled. And I was, I think, standing in my kitchen and I, <laughs> I think it was a Monday night. And I said, I've just done my last surgery. Yeah. That, that, that surgery, I could, maybe it was just a few days later, but I, I remember thinking that surgery was my, the last surgery that I will have done. So it wasn't at the time that I did the surgery, I didn't know it was my yeah, last yeah. surgery, which is probably a good thing. So did that, did that have an, once you, you came to that realization, did it have an impact on, on, you know, on who you thought you were or who you felt you were? But, no, no, not really. Yeah. But that's a good question because I think a lot, like in our society, we do define ourselves by our roles a lot, right? So that is a good question. Because when I, when I stopped, when I was seeing pa- patients afterwards, I had this internal question of, well, how do I introduce myself? Mm. I don't operate anymore. So am I still an orthopedic surgeon? Mm. Because Mm -hmm. clearly by definition, at least by some definitions, surgeon operates. So if you're, if you're not operating, can you really, you know, sort of be fully orthopedic surgeon? Mm. And you know, I've, I see many older senior surgeons who just can't give up the operating room. They still have to be in the, in the operating room. And I wonder if that's, those things are tied together. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Still felt like an orthopedic surgeon. <laughs> I wasn't doing surgery or I don't know, like, I guess. I probably defined my role as an orthopedic surgeon differently, maybe. Like, in other words, I felt that it was to educate patients Mm -hmm. about their musculoskeletal health. And so I maybe I defined it a little bit more like coming back to that whole teacher thing, right? Like, Like that I'm a teacher. And I'm trying to teach the patient how to take care of their physical body. And then if they need surgery, <laughs> we can do surgery, but that's not the primary and right. yeah. goal here. Like I, I didn't see surgery as the primary end goal for, for the patient coming to me with a problem. I, I saw it as how could how can we help this person with the symptoms they're having? Yeah. And if there were non-surgical means, that was as valuable as surgical means. I, I, I recall we had a conversation once about, you know, we, we shared a number of patients who have sort of mm. had, you know, hip problem, back problem. Mm-hmm. And it was a conversation about, you know, what was the root cause of, of a particular patient's pain. Mm. And, you know, it, it struck me that there was that, that we, we shared some common views about, you know, about pain and, you know, people's reaction to pain. Just wanted to get your, you know, get, get a little bit of idea of, you know, your, your thoughts on, on the chronic pain problem and, and, you know, patients with intractable pain. 
Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? So first of all, I would say the pain is very real Mm -hmm. for them, like in their life experience. It's a real pain. I suppose if, if we, and they're probably doing this in chronic pain management, you know, track your emotional body and your pain together, I would like, obviously the mind is far more powerful than the matter, than our matter, our body, Mm -hmm. our physical body. So that act, that mind activity that we were talking about before and the patterning that's created, I think that just takes over in terms of keeping somebody in a cycling mm-hmm. of pain. And, and part of it is like pain is a physical experience and it kind of is actually connected to pleasure in our brain, which is interesting, right? <laughs> so, but we've defined, like we very much defined pain as in an, like our brain likes to categorize things. It likes to put this in good and bad and right and yeah. wrong. And yeah. it, it's just easier to manage that, all the information if we can categorize it. And I think in our society, we've absolutely categorized pain in like, this is bad. This is wrong. It's very like, we have to get rid of this. And I guess the other thing that pain does just physiologically, it, it brings up fear and Mm -hmm. fear is sticks us into survival mode right and that fight or flight response and then we're into the sympathetic nervous system overdrive and and then that just keeps chasing our mind and we get caught in it so how do we stop that (laughs) (laughs) i'm thinking of both physical pain but but also emotional pain which I think, you know, they're, they're all sensations that we have. You know, we only, we only interact with the world with sensation and with, mm-hmm. with consciousness. So how do, we, how do we sort of mitigate those, those parts of it, the bad parts, what we consider the bad parts? We make friends with it. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, I guess in yoga, we practice, we practice being a witness. So observing the mind without reacting to it, trying to like practice training our, our neutral mind mm-hmm. so that we can have sensory experiences, fully experience them but not attached to them or, or push away from them. So attachment and aversion are sort of some of the, we call the kleshas, which are like, um, they keep us trapped in suffering. <laughs> <laughs> when we attach, people can be attached to their pain too, because it's maybe a good reason not mm. to do something. Yeah. So it comes back to that path of karma yoga where, and the Bhagavad Gita's message is um, it's way better to act than inaction, right? Inaction stops the flow of energy. So we're meant to act. And if we attach to pain, because then it gives us a reason not to mm-hmm. act, not to do something. Yeah. Right. And that's what psychic pain as well as yeah. physical pain. It's very real. I mean, hopefully in schools we can start teaching these sorts of things, right? I would hope, yeah. So now you're spending a lot of time supporting the, the mental health of students. And can you tell, tell me a little bit about, you know, what you're doing, what, what your role is, and, and, you know, what kind of a problem that, that's, you know, that you're seeing that needs to be solved? So research has already shown this, right? The people who come into medicine, the students I meet, they're extraordinary. They're extraordinary people. Mm -hmm. They come in with incredible empathy and motivation. But there's still a culture in medicine. It's a 
a deep-seated culture I, that... I yeah. used to call it the sausage, sausage factory. Ah. And that you take all these great people, broad scholars, leaders in the community, sports people, people of, you know, very intelligent. You throw them into medical school, they get chopped up, and then they get put into the sausage stuffer, sausage grinder stuffer, and then you get these sausages coming out, you know, uniform, sort of all blended up, you know, no particular sort of high points or low points. But then I realized over time that it's not, there are different kinds of sausages. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> there are chorizo sausages, there's uh, spicy Italian, there's whatever. And that sort of, that was my simplized analogy for what, what you're describing. And so, yeah, so that's a problem. Yeah, and I have to say, I, like, just the other day, I bumped into a couple of our colleagues when I was going to renew my parking at the hospital. It was so lovely to see them, and they were, it was just so uplifting. And I was like, oh, they're such amazing people. And they are amazing people. They're working in a system and a culture that is difficult. And, and so you've been doing a lot of work to try to support them and or support the medical students. And it seems like the pandemic has, has magnified things and there's, what's the outlook? What's the pathway for the, for, you know, people who are just in that, in that stage of life? I think that looks good, but maybe I tend to be an optimist. <laughs> I think the outlook is good because this, even this conversation that you and I are having right now and the little conversations that are happening in medicine and the kinds of topics that are showing up in the journals and at conferences, we've at least started to talk about it, right? We, and we definitely started to recognize that like physician wellness is important. And certainly in the 80s and 90s, there was no talk like that. No. <laughs> <laughs> like that wasn't even on the radar, right? So the fact that that's even now built into the conversation, I think is a huge leap forward. Yeah. And I mean, change takes a long time. <laughs> so I, we can't expect it to change overnight. It's been a certain way for a long time. A lot of inertia in the, in, in the process. Yeah. Yeah. So you're at this stage, you, you've really lived a varied life. So what would you tell your, yourself, your 15 year old self or your 25 year old self, you know, having gotten to this stage and gotten, you know, seen the world and, and done things, what, what's that advice that you'd, uh, you'd provide to your you know, to that motivated, keen <laughs> young woman. Yeah, it's something that she wouldn't have listened to at that time, but <laughs> I would still tell her it. <laughs> I could say it two ways. One is meditate every day or practice yoga, like mm -hmm. follow that path. That's what I would say. And so the... The purpose of the meditation or yoga is what do you, I know we've talked some about it, but for this, you know, for, for that 15 year old, how does that translate uh, for them into a different life? They would hopefully experience it more with a neutral mind and mm -hmm. maybe not try so hard, like place the effort, <laughs> but sort of this amount of effort's good enough kind of thing. And, or, yeah, it's just all the whole philosophy of not trying to mm -hmm. attack. And I would probably, it would probably be just do it without any particular expectation and see what happens. So just do it <laughs> and then see what happens. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I want, I want to thank you very much. 
as always, it's, it's a pleasure talking with you. And, you know, I, I think that that concept of doing it, see what happens, life is just meant to be lived. I think that these are things that, that stand us all in good stead. Thank you, Rick. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Winding Life Podcast. Special thanks to Greg Mano for audio and video recording and production, and to Nick Wright for audio editing and production.